is the matter with you? You are making a mountain out of a mole, Hill. Good morning and welcome to episode 376 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller, uh, and we have another special guest today. It is our listener email show, and this will be the most uh, listener email-y of the listener email shows because we have a listener on the show today. Uh, Dan Brooks, who was our guest earlier this week and told you about the Sabre seminar, uh, is auctioning off or has auctioned off some some special gifts of, of various sorts uh, to support the Jimmy Fund, which is the, the Sabre seminar's good cause. One of those gifts was co-hosting an effectively wild email show, uh, and it was snapped up very quickly. Uh, and the person who snapped it up was Ryan Sullivan, who joins us today. Hello, Ryan. Hey, guys. How are you? We are well, thank you. Uh, so tell us, tell us about yourself. Well, uh, first of all, my name's Ryan, as you announced, and uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Baseball Prospectus. Uh, I run the website natsgm.com, uh-huh. which is a uh, you know critical analysis uh, website focusing on obviously the Washington Nationals and obviously uh, some other, uh, you know, I cover the Orioles. I do some college baseball, uh, do a lot of draft coverage and um, pretty much whatever I like within the uh, umbrella of baseball. Mm-hmm. So I do that. And I also do a podcast uh, called the Red Porch Report, uh, obviously a national space podcast that uh, you can find on iTunes or from uh, redporchreport.com. All right. Uh, so everyone can can check out the site and the podcast. So you are so, you're a professional. So you got all the out of the way. Yeah, you're <laughs> you're an old hand at this. Uh, this is no amateur. Um, so uh, what we're gonna do is uh, wait let, before we yeah. before we do anything. Can yeah. I ask him a question since we have a real listener here? <laughs> sure. So today, Ben, on your in your chat, you did uh-huh. a chat at Baseball Prospectus. You were asked this. You were asked this question uh, by a fellow named Mitchell uh, from Baton Rouge. He asked, "Do you ever get tired of recording Effectively Wild?" It <laughs> seems Sam does, but you, but you keep it going. Now, I'm 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 worried. I feel like I'm picking up a little bit of a growing sentiment that uh, that that the public considers Ben uh, a hero, the hero of the show. <laughs> uh, yeah. The gritty, the gritty scrapper, mm-hmm. and that that it considers me the villain, the heel, <laughs> if you will. Uh, and I think Ben, you and I both know that um, that in fact we share ninety nine point eight percent of our uh, of, of our of our feelings about this show, and that that includes both the uh, warm glow that we both feel at times and the uh, the uh, existential dread we feel many other times. Mm-hmm. And it's. Um, it's a complicated relationship we each have with this show. I think that it's fair to say that. You might not think it's fair to say that, but but I think it's fair to say that. But I just wanted to ask uh, Ryan whether you think that uh, I that I suck. Like, am I the <laughs> am I the sucky part of this show? Is that is this is this a fair assessment that I suck? No, I just think it's the boss man gets the credit as always. So I think you're just catching a little shrapnel is all. Uh-huh, all right. So it's the man is keeping me down. That's the way it goes, right? I think it's just good branding. I'm I'm in there with the listeners in the Facebook group every day, talking, talking, responding to comments. Uh, I'm I'm a man of the people. 
Yeah, that's true. You do spend a lot more of your life on Facebook. That's <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's uh, true. Can't deny that. Ben's always on Facebook. <laughs> so we have let right. Ryan pick the questions this week. Um, so you can't complain if your question is not picked because we had an actual listener read through the listener emails and pick his favorite ones. Uh, so you can just go ahead and start with whatever you want and, and read them if you have them in front of you. Oh, and of course I don't have them in front of me. Sam, do you have I, them in front of me? I'll read it. I'll read. I'll read the first one. I, I can okay. read the second, the third, the fourth. I can read all of them if you want. You can read them. We didn't discuss this because mm-hmm. we don't ever discuss anything. But I'll just keep. I'll. You can interrupt me anytime you want. Um, with the format of the show. Yeah. Yeah. So all right. So uh, it'll be mostly me talking over people as usual. So uh, the first question is uh, from Brady, uh, who uh, has an idea that he admits up front has plenty of holes in it. Uh, when a pitcher comes up to hit. Why don't managers have their least valuable position player on the diamond come and pitch to him? Uh, from the additional pitches saved, the pitcher might be able to throw to another batter or two. What do you think? Uh, well, I I would ben, enjoy ben, watching this. Oh, are, ben, are we supposed to let ben. the guests go first? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you think about most things. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I could have I could have I could have written your answer, put it in an envelope. <laughs> sealed it up and opened it, you know, three days later, and it would have been right on target. So let's, let's hear what the guest has to say. Okay. Uh, this sounds like one of those plans that was hatched over a few beers at a bar one night, because I, I understand the logic to it, you know, but there are just too many holes in it to go through it and kind of practically move forward. Mm-hmm. The first of which is, I can't imagine what the media would do the first time one of the pl- uh, position players came into pitch and injured themselves or if one of the pitchers actually who was playing a defensive position injured themselves, I can't imagine what that uh, uh, feedback would be on Twitter and on, uh, you know, baseball prospectus and the rest of the internet was kind of the first thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we would probably support it unaffectedly well, but <laughs> no one else. Entertainment purposes, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that seems like the biggest problem here. And, and then, Maybe the other one is, uh, it kind of reminds me of the, the question that comes up every postseason about whether you want to, uh, how you want to align your rotation. Like if you want to concede a game where the other team's ace is starting, so you start your worst starter so that you can start your best starter on a day when they don't have a good starter, so you can maximize your odds in that game. This is sort of similar. Do you want to... Do you want to concede or, you know, do you want to uh, take it easy on the batter uh, who is a pitcher and is not good? Or do you want to press the advantage and and maximize it by keeping your pitcher in? Um, I don't I, 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 I mean, the injury risk alone is probably a, a reason not to do this. So let's say that the average pitcher has a 300 OPS and uh, the average hitter has a 700 OPS and. Uh, you know, David Ortiz has a has a 1,000 OPS against the uh, you know against a typical pitcher, and then you bring in this you know the shortstop to pitch. So, do you think all of their OPSs go up proportionately? Like, would the pitcher go to 500 and the hitter go to 900 and David Ortiz go to 1,200? Because if it's the if that's the case, you actually don't have any any more to gain by throwing, you know, a scrub against the pitcher. I mean, it's not, this would make, actually, this would make sense 
if pitchers hit zero across the board and you felt like you could get quite a bit worse and still have them hit zero, like if there was this margin of zero that you were kind of wasting, like you were using too good a pitcher to keep them at zero. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that pitchers do get hits and they would get many more hits. Uh, and pr it seems to me possibly, you know, proportionately more hits. So you wouldn't actually gain anything mathematically from it. Furthermore, you'd have a pitcher playing in the field um, and so your defense would be harmed, and so it's conceivable that the pitcher would actually uh, gain more from this setup uh, than you know than than other hitters would. So um, uh, so I'm not actually sure that the math even even necessarily would would find an advantage to this. Mm. Yeah, and and you don't even get the advantage of uh, the pitcher not facing the regular batters more times, right? Like we've talked about the the, fam the familiarity advantage that the batter gets as he faces a pitcher a few times. This is just the opposing pitcher who would probably be out of the game anyway. So you're talking about the only benefit being just, a, you know, three or four pitches. Um, so I don't think it's enough. He does specify that it is the least valuable position player. So this would have to be... It could work on a team that had a, a perfect combination of a, a really, really bad position player who had some pitching experience. Uh, yeah, yeah, but probably not. Yeah, well, sure, that'd be nice. Yeah. Well, the, actually, the re I actually, for a few minutes, liked this idea mainly. I, actually, I did not like this idea uh, at all. <laughs> there was zero part of me that liked this idea. But what I started toying with was the idea that you should have to do this, that you that a pitcher should not be allowed to face another pitcher, that it should be deemed uh, merciless. And so you actually would have to bring in a position player. And I liked that idea because then teams would have an incentive to carry a position player who can really pitch. And we all want that. There is not one person alive who does not want two-way players. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody, nobody doesn't want that. It's it's amazing that it hasn't happened because we all want it more than anything in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, are we done with that one? Sure. All right. So uh, Matt Matt uh, asks a question about instant replay. Um, how much more important do you think that this makes a good saber savvy manager? this being having instant replay. I know the number of plays this will impact is relatively small, but you just know at some point that Ned Yost will challenge a Salvador Perez blooper turned from a flyout into a single so that Alcides Escobar can bat with two outs and Perez on first. The Cubs put a member of their front office uh, on the bench next to new manager Renteria, uh, Rick Renteria, and one of their coaches is a catching and strategy coach. Are more teams going to populate staffs with guys who can tell a manager when a moment is really important now that another opportunity for the manager to impact the game that way has been invented? So to, to boil this down, do you see um, this being a place for a good manager to really separate himself from a bad manager strategically? I'm not answering. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Dan proved on the podcast earlier this week that the first chance you get to throw the flag, throw the flag. So would you, if it were Sal Perez, two outs, blooper, turned it from a fly out to a single, Alcides Escobar batting with Perez on first, is that worth it? I mean, is there, is it, does that qualify even under Dan's uh, rubric, or is even that just too low a threshold? Because it does seem like if you're a manager – uh, and you see this play that doesn't go your way, 
even if it's not meaningful at all, and maybe maybe it maybe the bar is so low that everything is meaningful enough, but even if it were just so uns- insignificant, it would be really hard to keep that flag in your pocket if you thought that uh, you know you, justice had not been served. I mean, there's this tremendous longing in 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 humans to see justice happen, and if you feel like you have not had justice done for you, it would be really hard not to to make a protest, even if it were totally pointless. I mean, you see how much managers like like get passionate and fired up over things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I I think the uh, I think this is the way that things are going anyway, and we've we've talked about how teams are are hiring new kinds of coaches to be the the liaison between the, the dugout and the front office and how maybe managers are getting more savvy about this stuff or at least are are more open to input from people who are um so i think that's kind of the the trend anyway maybe this maybe this moves that along slightly um i feel like the i don't even know if it's saber savviness though in this case i feel like it's uh like fearlessness or or willingness to be annoying um, because as we as we talked about, a manager who who does this uh, is at risk of being criticized for doing it and for using up his challenges when he might need a challenge more even later. So you would need a kind of manager who who would not mind that and would be okay with being criticized and would be okay with with annoying the umpires and and the opposing players and all of those things and just. Uh, doing what the what the math says is right, so I think that's probably even more important than than the, the saber savviness of the guy. But don't you? I mean, I think that it seems to me almost a certainty that uh, within a year of this rule coming into play, we will see a um, like a like an in like a I don't even know what the word would be like uh, uh, you know like you'll see a chart and it'll show. Uh, how certain you need to be and what the exp- run and basically what Dan and, and Russell were talking about but you'll see a chart that shows that for every inning every situation and what sort of win probability you would need uh, in order to, to make throwing a flag worthwhile um, so wouldn't it be saber savvy to have that chart memorized maybe have that chart in your back pocket just like uh, you know NFL coaches need to know whether to go for two or, or, or kick the extra point yeah sure yeah, I don't know whether is any manager at that point right now. I don't know. Does any manager even have a have a win expectancy table in his back pocket? Maybe you have some basic idea. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I uh, I mean, if you laminated it, kept it nice, seems like a useful thing to have. Mm-hmm. I would I would have one. I like things that are laminated. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Uh, can I ask? Uh, this was not. This was also a question that Matt asked, um, and Ryan didn't select it. But it's quick, so can we just do this one? Uh, Grant Balfour, uh, whose name I actually can't pronounce right, Balfour, but I can't not say Balfour. Grant Balfour hit just one batter the past four seasons, facing 1,015 batters. Uh, so will he hit an Oriole in 2014? If he does, does he have a, a leg to stand on within the code? Uh, even if there's the presumption that he did it with intent, 
And if he does, would you consider him a monster, a stud, or a fool if he did hit someone? And let's presume that he doesn't hit someone in a way that obviously costs his team a game. can be difficult for those of us who do not play the game to understand the unwritten rules at times, but it seems to me that this would be a violation, right? Because you would be punishing the players for the, the front offices or the owners' sins, and that doesn't seem like something that anyone would be in favor of. Ryan, do you yeah, want to see I, Grant Balfour go headhunting? Uh, well, I mean, you know, while I would like to see the entire Orioles fan base get enraged just for the sheer amusement of it, but uh, no, I mean, it, it's not a part of the game. And like Ben said, you know, this isn't a, you know, you're retaliating at the wrong person. I mean, you know, if it was some way to throw at Angelos or the training staff, that might be one thing, but I do think that'll happen. I think he'll hit somebody next year, but, you know, neither An Oriole? Not oh. an Oriole. An Oriole. No. So, but the thing is that so, much, so many times retaliatory pitches are not aimed at the person who did you harm. I mean, there is a collective guilt. This is part of baseball's unwritten rules. Um, there's a collective guilt that the team shares when somebody does wrong. And so you don't necessarily hit the pitcher who hits you. You hit the guy who corresponds to the guy who was hit on your team. You know, the cleanup hitter or the rookie. Um, you know, you, you hit the wrong guy all the time. So, uh, you know, these guys are all willing to get in bed with Peter Angelos and take his money. They're all getting rich off Peter Angelos' uh, 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 mistreatment of you. I mean, there is, there is literally a guy who will be spending Grant Balfour's money. I don't know who the Orioles are going to sign now, but whoever it is will be uh, putting his great-grandchildren through college with Grant Balfour's money. Why not throw at that guy? I mean, and I'm not saying that as like a human, but I'm saying that as a as like a, a hypothetical rage-driven baseball player with a foulest mouth in, in the game. <laughs> Why not hit that guy? Hmm. You took $3 million out of your pocket. Yeah, it would be tough not to. Yeah, it would a, be tough not to. Make a good case. So would you would you consider him a monster, a stud, or a fool? <laughs> uh, I I consider most headhunting players somewhere between monster and fool, probably. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in there. Yeah, can there be an option D? Mm-hmm. Just like a good teammate. Uh, yeah, yeah. Pick whatever adjective you want. This <laughs> this list can grow. We can spend the rest of the show coming up with adjectives to describe Grant Balfour if you want it. <laughs> Uh, all right. Um, so uh, this one is from Stephen, um, who writes, To get both AL and NL back to playing the same kind of baseball, what if the game were played by NL rules and the rosters were expanded by two players, but with no DH? Now a manager can choose to let a pitcher bat or pinch hit for the pitcher. However, the pitcher does not have to leave the game when hit four. And each pinch hitter can hit only once and is then out of the game. So the manager's decision on pitching changes becomes like the AL. And decisions on whether to have the pitcher bat are based on game situation and available pinch hitters. In effect, this provides an expanded bench, allowing more pinch hitting without pitchers leaving the game. But pinch hitting for a non-pitcher would remain as it is now. And more substitution slash playing time options. So, Ryan, why'd you pick this one? I just thought it was an interesting theory behind it. I mean, I'm not one that necessarily has a problem with the NL and AL playing different styles of baseball, but I did think at least it was interesting to think about changing the rosters a little bit. I thought it would add some 
pretty interesting player personnel moves during the game. At least it could. You know, whether you want to pinch hit for the pitcher in the third inning with two outs and nobody on, or do you want to let the pitcher go ahead and bat there and save your position player for later or your pinch hitter later? I mean, like I said, there's a lot of moving parts here. Probably could never happen, but I did think it was kind of an interesting kind of scenario. And I yeah, wanted to you guys thought too. It, it is interesting that this addresses this attempts to sort of address the different styles of play um, by sort of finding the common strategies that you want to uh, you know that you want to prevail in whatever uh, does happen. So if, if you consider um, if you consider pitchers batting to be like a you know a, an automatic um, bad thing, a bad idea, um, then this gets rid of that. But if you consider the sort of um, uh, you know, blandness of having a DH uh, taking some of the decisions out of the manager's hand, and this gets rid of that too. And uh, it appeases the players' union um, by adding two roster spots instead of one, um, while also kind of eliminating the DH, which the you know the DH himself, the, the the sort of type of hitter that some people just I think don't like. I think that there's a there's a there's a there's a certain type of player that does not find great popularity because he's a DH and you see it with the way that you know people don't want to vote for MVPs who are DH or they don't want to uh, put DHs in the Hall of Fame there's just I think there's people who just don't like the idea of a player who only does one thing um, and you know who the, the sort of uh, I don't know personality characteristics that you project on such a guy so it eliminates that sort of guy I don't know if that's a happy thing or a sad thing DHs uh, when they're good uh, are some of the most fun guys in the game. I, I mean, nobody yeah. doesn't like David Ortiz. Yeah, and I it would like, be sad like to not have him. Although he, he'd be playing though. I mean, David Ortiz would still be playing mm-hmm. in a world without DHs. It's actually probably, it's probably, I don't know. It's sort of hard to imagine the player who wouldn't be playing in a world without DH. I mean, so if there were, if there was no DH, can you think of sort of five guys in the game who wouldn't be in the game? Dan Vogelbach. He's in the Cubs. He's a. I mean, he's not even on an AL team. <laughs> this is just that was like a, yeah. yeah, that's well, that's it isn't. I mean, it's conceivable that his. I mean, his prospect status might be considerably lower if there wasn't that escape valve. But you know, he'd be in the game. He'd be a lot. I mean, he'd be still be hitting baseball somewhere. Uh, but like, well, Raul, how didn't Raul Abanez play outfield last year? So you yeah. can't say him. Uh, you know, Bobby Abreu would be one that you would have said like a couple years ago, except that he played in the NL for a year after you thought that he was toast. So I don't actually know that this would kick anybody out of the sport. There aren't that many dedicated DHs. And, and the ones that there are, good are that really good hitters. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Hafner hasn't played a game in, in mm. the field in like seven years, and he's not all that great a hitter. So Hafner's mm. gone, right? We can agree that Hafner would have been gone four years ago. Yeah, yes. it would have to be someone injury-prone, someone who just couldn't handle playing in the field. Um, Raul Abanez play started 98 games in the field last year. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. I don't think that will happen uh, again. So Paul Molitor is often held up as the example of the guy whose career was kept going because he, you know, could DH and you know he played half his career as a DH and he got 3,300 hits and he's in the Hall of Fame and. Without that, he wouldn't have gotten all those hits, and he wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. But, I mean, it seems to me overwhelmingly likely that Paul Molitor would have 
probably played all but the last like two seasons of that. Maybe if that even even in a world without DHs. I mean, he was in his 30s. He had a shortstop's background. I'm sure he would have slid over and been a bad third baseman or a terrible second baseman or an okay first baseman, just fine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all right. So I guess that, yeah, that works. It's, it's probably, it's probably the thing about that solution is it's very complicated and it, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't, doesn't do much that adding a DH in the NL doesn't do. Yes. Uh, although, although <laughs> that's how probably, I would like to to get them back to playing the same kind of baseball. Just add a DH. In uh-oh, the other Ben. Uh oh, mm. you've done it. You've done I, it, Ben. What have you've I done? Shared an opinion. You've shared uh-huh. an opinion about the DH. We made it 376 <laughs> episodes. No, without... I've said it before. I remember bashing pitchers hitting. We we mocked pitchers hitting, but that's not the same. I think pitchers hitting is the the dumbest craziest thing about the sport and it's my by far my favorite part of the sport other than weird baseball situations <laughs> pitchers catching would be my favorite thing but this is a pretty pretty solid alternative mm-hmm. uh all right now i have to you guys talk amongst yourself while i gotta find it the other one that i'm supposed to get uh this one oh my gosh this one is so long all right <laughs> this is from brendan uh this is about Tom Verducci ideas, which we talked about and which were essentially their own email show. And he's got a few simple suggestions. So let's just pretend this is a new Tom Verducci column and we'll go over each of them. Uh, college baseball drastically, uh, dramatically increase interest by moving to wooden bats. The college game just needs to appeal more to existing baseball fans and baseball fans love the wooden bat game. Easy fix. Uh, I think that in creating the feeling that it is a, a more of a sort of a there's more continuity between the college game and the program game would would be pretty helpful I don't know that I don't know that aesthetically it would make a big difference but just feeling like this was an extension of the game of the pro game seems like it might help I would be zero percent more likely to watch college baseball if there were wooden bats oh yeah uh, I not, don't, a, yeah, not I don't against think- it but uh, it would not dramatically increase my interest. Yeah, it feels to me that, I mean, if you want to fix college baseball, you just eliminate the minor leagues. And if you want to, I mean, that would be horrible. We love the minor (laughs) leagues. So college baseball doesn't need to be fixed. We have minor league, there's there's 225 minor league teams that are all drawing fans across the country. It's a pretty popular sport uh, when you consider it that way. Mm. Uh, But uh, 0%, I would say... Go ahead. I was just going to say the college game just needs more of a spotlight, like what they're doing on ESPNU. I mean, the product's great now, particularly with the changed bats. I love college baseball. I, I think they just need more exposure. Can you do me a favor? Tell me how to watch college baseball, because I don't actually know how to watch it. I, I feel like I, I haven't invested the time to make it a, a sort of a fun viewing experience, and it's just such a one-off thing that I just sort of tune in and then pretty quickly tune out. So... Like, how do you watch college baseball? What uh, what do you look for? What sort? What do you look for games? Do you look for players? Are you um, are you interested in certain storylines? What 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 should I do to watch? Because I would love to like college baseball more. I do it much more for the players, and I approach it just kind of educating myself for the draft. But you know, there's so many resources out there now. Whether you want to actually go watch the Cape or whatever you you know want to use your site or what have you, there's just so much availability out there, and 
with it now being, like I said, on ESPNU, they show it SEC Game of the Week, you can see normally a really good Friday night starters. I mean, you're looking at guys like Tyler Beattie at Vanderbilt or Aaron Nola at LSU or, goodness, whoever's going to start on Friday nights in Florida. I mean, you can see some great players just doing that. And Fox College Sports does a pretty good job of showing a lot of games. So you got to look for it. I mean, you got to have a DVR and actually try to find it. But I'm definitely watching more players and teams than I am. I mean, I couldn't tell you who wins the game half the time at the end of the day. Yeah. But I can tell you whether this pitcher could deal or whether this hitter can hit. You know what I think I would – I think what would help college baseball a lot actually is if um, is if teams drafted before the college season started. Mm. And so all uh, – there were, you know, something like, you know, 900 guys who are actually attached to big league teams and you could tune in and watch – you know the guy that your team just drafted sixth overall playing college games, and I know that that would that would scare the heck out of teams. They would hate it. Um, but you know, I I think that would actually do a lot. Um, ESPN I, does a good job for the College World Series, kind of putting at the bottom where those guys got drafted. I'm with you. I think that would help a lot. Oh, so yeah, that's right. Because there is a little bit of time after the uh, the draft of the World Series is still going, right? Correct. So yeah, that would be tremendously fun to watch. I also. Um, I feel like one of the things that I would like more is if I got a sense that that college baseball was some sort of like incubation lab for or is incubation lab you know like uh, what do you call it incubation incubator for <laughs> new ideas like I, the thing I like about college football and college basketball is that there's a, a such a, a broad array of styles and you get the feeling that teams are experimenting with things or at, at the very least they're playing like sort of on the extremes of, of of uh, different styles of play, and I've never got the sense that the, that the college baseball game uh, is that much different. It, there's more bunting because play is sloppy. Got and metal bats. And there's metal bats, but you don't get. I, I do you see, and I maybe I just don't watch enough. But do you see coaches? You know, do you see the equivalent of the no punt coach in baseball, like the coach who's doing something really weird? Because um, if there was, I'd watch that. But I don't ever get the sense that's happening. I wouldn't. I don't know if it's quite that drastic, but you certainly see teams build their programs around whether, like a New Mexico, where they're playing at altitude. You know, they're going to build their team around hitting, like the DJ Petersons. Whereas, you know, some of the schools in the north, you know, when these maybe they have a bigger park, they try to get more pitching just because you know it's going to be more valuable in kind of the bigger parks that they play in. So I would say answer it that way, but I don't think you see one team, you know. They don't have a field goal kicker because they're going for it every fourth down or anything of that nature. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would love to see extreme sorts of styles of play. Um, uh, so ape than you do actually probably in college baseball. Really? Yeah, it's just they build their teams around the parks, and some teams are known for speed, and some are known for, you know, having big time left handed hitters because they have a short right porch and things of that nature. You know more about baseball than we do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Clearly, well, I'm just a big nerd about college baseball and the draft. <laughs> Uh, well, things of that nature are things that I like, so that sounds fun. I'm going to have to check out the Cape. Um, all right, so uh, this is uh, his next Verducci-esque idea. Uh, minor league baseball games need to become more meaningful. Small communities need to feel like their team is playing for some kind of truly meaningful championship. Um, I don't have a problem with that, but uh, the, I think uh, – sorry for answering before I ever give anybody else a chance to answer. I just realized I'm doing that. Um I mean, minor league baseball doesn't work financially, I don't think, if you don't have the, you know, the, the relationship that they have to the big league affiliates and the big league affiliates 
naturally prioritize their development. And so it's very hard, it seems to me, to sort of serve two masters in that way. And so the 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 pure competitiveness of it uh, is the thing that gets sacrificed. I don't know if there's a way to get around that. Yeah, me neither. I, I read a... You know, it's more difficult at the lower levels. You can have some veterans at AAA if you cared about winning, you know, from that end, but... The lower you go, the tougher it's going to be in that respect. I uh, I also, um, you know, I think this is true to some degree. Um, but also, if you do go, I mean, if you spend much time in one in one minor league park for a season, you will find that, in fact, there's like a core of dedicated fans who don't care about the, the big league club at all, that they are completely dedicated to the minor league affiliate and that treat it like, you know, a real team and that are, I mean, they're as into it as anybody you ever see. So um, I don't know how much the kind of lack of competitiveness is necessarily picked up on by the average fan. I mean, I haven't, you know, I, the, the problem is that I've always lived in areas that are around big league clubs. I've never lived in, in Iowa um, where that's, that's the closest, you know, that's the closest good baseball you have. I've always been in San Diego, L.A., or Northern California where it's very clear that these are second second tier teams um and ben has always lived uh on the upper east side mm, west it is upper west side and um so ryan have you ever lived in a minor league only area uh, i live in the dc area so obviously we have the nationals in baltimore the orioles up the road but you know i go to a lot of frederick games i go to a lot of hagerstown and potomac and you know, I'm probably at 30 to 50 minor league games a year. So uh, wow. it's just, so it was just, I was curious, kind of your take, because Sam, I think you're right on it. I, I think the fans are pretty knowledgeable at that minor league level that, yeah, you know, Manny Machado is probably not going to be with us the whole year, but they get into their team. And I think they, it is a source of pride when they win the regular season or they win the first half of the regular season. So I don't know, I don't want to say the question is off, but I don't get necessarily the impression that that's the problem. I mean, the stands are normally crowded and the product's pretty good if you're into baseball. I did read a study recently in the in the Sabre Research Journal that talked about what factors drive minor league attendance and how there was a perception that winning doesn't have any effect, that, that people just show up no matter whether the team is good or bad in the same numbers that they would and that they they come out for fireworks night or free hot dog night or whatever promotion there is, but not for not for a winning team. And this study suggested that that wasn't really the case, that a winning team does draw better. Uh, and obviously a, a team with some top prospect on it draws better. So there is, uh, I think there's some relationship there, but I I don't know how much more they could do to promote that. So, Ryan, you've been to playoff games, I assume, minor league playoff games? A few, yeah. Would you describe it as a playoff atmosphere relative to the regular season games? Can you tell it's different? It's amped up for sure, absolutely. I mean, the crowds yeah. are, more, are more, I mean, they're more filled, obviously, just first and foremost. But, yeah, the atmosphere is much bigger. I mean, you know, it's like a, you know, a regular college basketball game and then, you know, a good team comes into town. Obviously, the electricity, the energy is a little higher. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the fans are diehards like, you know, when you lose a playoff game in the majors, but, you know, it means, you know, a lot to them the same. All right. Um, yeah, so I don't think that's necessarily a problem that needs to be dealt with. Um, uh, 
the last one is increased parity in the game. And, um, of course, this is not a great time in baseball's history to be complaining about the lack of parity uh, <laughs> with the Pirates and the A's um, and the Orioles and uh, having recently made uh, the playoffs and with the uh, Royals acting as though they did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everybody's been pretty good at some point recently. It is not like it was three years ago. But um, do, you, do you feel like parity is or the lack of parity is sort of a monster that's about to strike again. I mean, are we just really, really lucky to be in this blip? Um, and is it conceivable that um, all these teams that I just named and some others are about to go into their next 18-year stretches without postseason? Or is that the the generationless, uh, uh, you know, the entire generation without a playoff appearance phenomenon gone? Mm, yeah, we've we've talked about that before when we when we did those shows on the lack of correlation between spending and winning, and and we wondered whether that was here to stay or whether this is just a, a deceptive uh, blip, as you say. And I think I I think I lean toward it being a blip, but uh, but it also not ever being as bad as maybe it has been at times, because um, I think the the luxury tax works to some extent i think i don't know it almost made the yankees not spend not quite but almost <laughs> are were you an orioles fan before you were a nats fan i was and so what's your take on the orioles is that a uh, is that an organization that uh, well let me ask it let me put it this way in the next uh 10 years how many postseason title uh postseason appearances will they have and in the next 25 how many world series will they win Oh wow! Um, yeah, that's we like to predict of, things that can't possibly be even conceived of. Uh, I mean, I love the pitching they have in the minor leagues. So, but that division's so hard. It, maybe they make the playoffs one out of four years, one out of three years. Really? Well, that would be considered. I mean, that would be successful for almost any team in baseball. Well, I think the fifth wild card or the fifth playoff team helps. They may go to a sixth, like, but. Yeah, it, maybe you're right. Maybe it is more like 25%. Mm-hmm. So you don't think they're a lost franchise at all? So that because if, if no, I were no. naming if I were naming teams that would be contenders to go, you know, to to be victims of a lack of parity for a number of reasons, the the Orioles would be like sort of one of the f- maybe four or, or five that I would name. So if you're not that pessimistic about them, um, and frankly, I'm not that pessimistic about any of them right now. I I really at this point. I don't see a lack of parity as a problem. I, but, you know, a couple of years ago, I saw it as a huge problem. So it, it's really hard to to say, probably. Make up your mind. I think baseball did a good job of it with all with cleaning up, if you want to call it that way, the spending at the amateur level. I mean, you can't have a Yankee team or you know a big market team or a small market team for that matter just flood the market and get all the amateur oh. talent now. So oh, Ryan, Ryan, I love you. I love you so much. You, Ben, and I have been saying this for so long and no, and everybody says the opposite i'm so so happy that you say this i i think this is just such an obvious thing that the that 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 the the new collective bargaining agreement in the short term limits the ability of a team like the pirates to go out and you know make a big splash on the international market or in the draft but in the long term it totally promotes parity Absolutely. And the guys that you're buying in free agency are just, I mean, you can see it with the Yankees. If they're going to keep buying these old guys, it's just going to kind of keep rolling over itself. All right. So uh, Brady again, two Brady's 
Brady, you're, it's your lucky day. Someone loves, someone in this show likes you today. Uh, we all, we like you all the time, but someone really likes you. Uh, Brady asks, what's your favorite Seinfeld episode? And this was before the news of the Seinfeld reunion came out. This is well-timed. Oh, I didn't hear about this. Yeah, apparently there's there's going to be some sort of uh, Seinfeld reunion. Jerry Jerry let slip earlier today. It's not clear what it is, but he said it's not a it's not a commercial and uh, it's something, and we'll know soon. And I was just with or without Michael Richards. Uh, I he was he was spotted on the street with Jason Alexander, so presumably he's in it, and and supposedly there are other Seinfeld characters, but. Uh, we don't know exactly who. And I was just re-watching uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm with my girlfriend the other day because she hasn't seen it. And we were just watching the Seinfeld reunion episode of that, which was which was very good. So I'm excited about this. As for... Uh, f- yeah, go ahead. If can get a gig, I guess Mel Gibson will be back in a movie soon. <laughs> He's been in... Wasn't he in? He was in some terrible movie. Um, so... The Beaver. <laughs> so I don't... I, there, I, this is an impossible question to answer. I, I, I don't know. The first one that that comes to mind for me is maybe the the Merv Griffin show episode, <laughs> um, just because it has a few has a few very distinctive Seinfeld things in it. It has uh, the Merv Griffin show. It has George's deal with the pigeons. It has uh, Jerry trying to put his girlfriend to sleep so he can play with the toys. And it has the Seidler in Elaine's office all in one episode, uh, which is pretty, pretty packed. So I could make a strong case for any number of episodes. But um, that, yeah, that came to mind quickly. Ryan? Uh, for me, it's probably the, uh, the airline episode where Jerry's in first class and Elaine's in coach and she's mm. trying to sneak up into first class. Good one. That one just—that uh, was the first one that jumped to mind to me. Oh yeah, no, that's a—I assume that's a great one. I've seen like one and a half episodes of Seinfeld. I don't have uh. of this. The, the one where he hits the golf ball into the whale is the only one I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, saw that one. Biologist. Marine, oh well, that's one of the best. <laughs> All right, good. That's why I quit. I thought oh, can only go downhill from here. I, I I watched that episode and said this is the greatest show on TV. I'm never watching it again. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know why I was never into Seinfeld. Um, actually, I do know why uh, I was never into Seinfeld. I was never into Seinfeld because I was allowed to watch two shows a week on weeknights. Two, you know, two TV shows a week on weeknights uh, during my sort of middle school and early high school years. And Seinfeld was on Thursday. What do you think are the odds that I ever made it to Thursday with shows <laughs> left? Never. Ever, ever. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to save one of these for later in the week. But it was Fresh Prince and Blossom every time. <laughs> so oh, well, that's that was not that. A, that's not a bad. Yeah, the holy trinity of, of 90s sitcoms for me is is Seinfeld, Fresh Prince, and Frasier. And I think they all hold up pretty well. Uh, Frasier was Tuesday. I occasionally got to Frasier. <laughs> I mean, it was on Thursday at first, but then it moved to Tuesday. So I occasionally got to Frasier. Uh so yeah, and then well, then I went through my Wheel of Fortune phase, <laughs> where I, I would burn through them on Wheel of Fortunes, and I would actually I would tape the other Wheel of Fortunes and watch them in the morning before I went to school. I I taped Wheel of Fortune just so everybody knows. Wow. That's a thing about me. 
your dad listens to this show, so I'm just going to say that you should have let Sam watch Seinfeld, Mr. Miller. <laughs> three or four shows a week, too, while you're at <laughs> it. Uh, I will say that my favorite Fresh Prince joke, not episode, but favorite Fresh Prince joke, which doesn't hold up that well, but um, it's when uh, Hillary's, you know, Hillary's husband, the weatherman, dies, and so she goes out dating, and she's, you know, she finds problems with every guy that she dates because she hasn't gotten over her, 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 uh, you know, her husband who she's who she's widowed by, and um, good so Trevor. She, yeah, there you go. So, so she and she and she and Will go on a double date to the theater, I believe, and she uh, things are going well. He seems good, but she's she can't get over this this blemish on his face, this this mark on his face, and and uh, she, Will's trying to get her to 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 get over it, and he yells at her, "You're making a mountain out of a mole, Hill," <laughs> and and I remember that I, I remember thinking that that line was so so precisely placed in this story that it seemed almost certain to me that the entire storyline came out of that joke and they had to figure out a storyline to, to fill that joke and so for the rest of my teenage years whenever i would watch tv i would always be on a lookout for that joke that i thought was the the seed for the entire episode and it was very rare that you would spot it but that one I, all right so uh david and sarah uh, David, I guess David and David shares his email address. But David asks, Sam, you're the owner of a baseball team, and your player pool is the 30 starting catchers in Major League Baseball. Ben, your team is comprised of. Now, see, mm, it's acceptable. I, it's acceptable. It's not acceptable. It's I think it acceptable. is these days. In this, the standards have the the world has moved on. I think you can say that now. Ben, you I'm are against it. You are literally killing me with your loose interpretation uh no you it is not comprised of it comprises the 30 i'm I'm against it don't get me wrong all right good ben your team comprises the 30 mlb starting first baseman your two teams are going to play each other in a series and i'd like to hear you construct your teams with these players assign positions to each of them uh you don't have to worry about pitcher by the way you we're all we're getting uh jeremy hellickson is going to be all-time pitcher for us apparently but you have to fill the rest of your team with um with all first basemen and i have to fill my team with all catchers i don't know if we're necessarily going to i don't think we're going to do this player by player because i didn't leave enough time to do this but uh what is, who has the advantage in this uh i think i do i do too i i for at first i thought i did and the more i thought about it the more i was convinced that you do because yeah. you only need you only need one first baseman who can catch, and I would say that in almost in not all but in almost all cases, I would take the first baseman over the catcher, the equivalent catcher at any other position. Mm-hmm. It's only catcher where I'm going to have the advantage, and you only need one. You only need Mauer. You know, you put <laughs> Mauer at catcher, and then the rest of your guys are all pretty good. Now there's the lefty thing. You're gonna you're I mean two thirds of your guys are eliminated from playing a third of the positions or half the positions. Mm-hmm. So that's not insignificant, but I would guess that uh, you win it, especially because a lot of first basemen are would be bad at other positions but did play other positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've moved down the defensive spectrum, so at least they have the experience. But most catchers are just catchers. They were catchers when they were eight. 
They've been catchers this entire time. No, you know, very few catchers have ever played center field. But there are, you know, there are first basemen who've played center field. I don't know if there's one right now, and I don't know if there's a starter. But you know, Mark Kotze and Darren Nursad, and you know, various guys have made the move. And you can probably find some. Certainly, they've played outfield. Lance Berkman played center field for a year. That was the thing I took away from Zachary Levine's <laughs> yeah. piece today. I had totally forgotten the year that Lance Berkman was a center fielder. Yeah, that's amazing. I once, by the way, do you remember um, when? Uh, oh, geez, I'm forgetting his name. The guy at ESPN who we used to like so much. Uh, he had like a column. Hang on, uh, Eric Neal. Eric Neal is that his name? I'm forgetting it. Jeez, uh, I'm forgetting it. Yeah, Eric Neal. Eric Neal. So Eric Neal used to write a column for ESPN. Sorry, I blanked on his name. Um, and it was really good. It was this great column on ESPN. It was sort of weird. It was like in the early days of stat headery and he was stat heady, but he was also funny and sort of kind of like, kind of like Jim Baker asking one of the things he would do is, um, is suggest a nickname for players. And, uh, one of the players he suggested was Lance Berkman. And, uh, I suggested the nickname trunk space and it got a mention in his column. And I was really <laughs> excited. <laughs> All right, I uh, I have to go pretty soon because, as you know, elementary is almost on. So we're gonna do uh, one more, uh, and I, I believe it's uh, yeah. So this one's gonna be from uh, from friend of the show Eric Hartman, who asks, would it ever be worth it for a team to play with eight men on the field to shorten the lineup? Ryan, let me ask you, would it ever be worth it for a team to play with eight men on the field to shorten the lineup? Can you do it? I don't think so. No. Yeah, I think, you, my, I think it'd be an automatic act. Yeah, but uh, let's imagine you could. I mean, in softball, you can if you start the game with eight. Not if you start the game with nine and one leaves, then it becomes an automatic out. But if you start the game with eight, you can. So let's assume if you start the game with eight, you, you're allowed to. I better have Andrelton Simmons play in the middle infield. You had better. <laughs> yeah, um... No, I can't imagine it possibly could be, unless you've. Yeah, I can't imagine a scenario. Ben, I don't think so. Yeah, the problem is that in order, to, I mean, it's it's overwhelmingly likely, unless you're last year's Brewers, it's overwhelmingly likely that the guy you're going to want to kick out of your infield is one of your better defenders too. So you're not just taking out a defender; you're you're likely taking out your best and probably at a crucial position. So. Uh, I could imagine a scenario. Well, I couldn't really. But if you had a guy who um, was, you know, your worst hitter, and he was Adam Dunn playing, you know, the outfield, then you might not lose too much. But uh, you want Adam Dunn's bat, other than that one year. You want Adam Dunn's bat in your lineup. So I don't know. Maybe the year that Adam. Well, no, because he was the DH. Uh, well, maybe the year that Adam Dunn, when he was the DH, maybe they just should have. They would have well. They certainly would have been better off if they could have skipped Adam Dunn. So if they could have played with skipping the DH, if Eric will allow us to skip the DH, <laughs> and in fact there are a lot of teams that carry really garbage DHs. Yeah, the Orioles don't want to do that this year. In fact, I would bet. I would bet that uh, so we should run a query on this. But I would bet that something like thirty percent of the games that AL teams play feature a DH who is worse than the average hitter in the lineup. So in those 30% of games, they should they would they would all like to skip their DH if they could. Like if the pitcher didn't have to bat and they could just skip the DH, they would. So I guess the answer to Eric's question is if it were allowed, 
yes, you would shorten your lineup to eight guys 30% of the time. Okay. Fair? Sure. Let's take a vote. Do we vote? Fair. Yes, we, we skip DH. <laughs> yes. Well, the average DH last year hit uh, 245, 325, 402, which is a, a 261 true average. So basically a league average hitter. Yeah. Right. So there we go. Mm-hmm. All right, Ryan, it was fun to have you. Yeah, well, thank you so much, guys. This was a blast. It was it was also nice that you um, uh, both knew more about baseball than we did, but were very considerate about not embarrassing us about that fact. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you guys, and I just wish I could have brought a topic and made it easier for you guys. You brought eight. It was un- it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dan, if you want to make the real money next time auction off dates with us, that would that would really rack up the money. <laughs> And our, your wife and my girlfriend wouldn't mind because it would be about beating cancer. Um, but this was fun. I'm glad we could do I think this. There was a, I think there was a Fresh Prince episode about that, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, Ryan, Ryan, plug, Ryan plug, plug everything you do one more time. Well, thank you, guys. Um, I'm editor-in-chief. I run the website natsgm.com. You can find me on Twitter at natsgm.com, spelled out. Uh, and if you could give a listen to uh, my weekly podcast about the Nationals, it's called the Red Porch Report. You can find it either at redporchreport.com or you can find it on iTunes. We'd love to have uh, have you listen, and uh, thank you guys for letting me join you. I listen every day, and it's been uh, a real fun time talking baseball with you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming cool. on. Uh, yeah, so thanks for coming on. End of the week housekeeping. Our Facebook group is facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. Lots of people joining this week. Uh, our email address for listener emails next week is podcast at baseballperspectus.com. And we appreciate when you leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes uh, as it helps more people find the show. So have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back next week. Wait. You should ask him how you want, how he wants to be introduced and what you want to promote. Yeah. What you you want to plug. It's just going to. You're just going to wing it? Just going to hand it over to him. Tell us who he is. Yeah, that works too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Some people like to be announced, is all. Uh, Some people don't. Some people are terribly uncomfortable being announced. Well, this is our, to, sh- our show and we make the rules. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh-uh. Now on, everybody announces themselves. <laughs> official policy of Effectively Wild.